Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. Good morning, Gateway Church. How are you? All right. So for the 10 of you that are good, I hope the other other amount of you are also good, even though you're not as vocal. I just want to welcome those who are joining us online or at our, uh, or at our Tempe campus. We're so glad that you're here this morning. You know, we're in the middle of the Real Jesus series, and we've been talking a little bit about the Jewishness of Jesus over the last few weeks. You know, there's really three ways that we know that Jesus is Jewish. You, know what, you want to know what those three ways are? He lived at home till he was 30. He was in the family business, and his mom thought he was the Messiah. So it's a fact, Jesus is Jewish. But seriously, will you lift up your Bible or maybe your, your tablet or your phone? I just want to ask you a question. Do you love this book? Yeah. Well, you know what? The serve team prepared for you to be able to prove your love for the book this morning. We're going to distribute some honey and we're going to pour it all over our book and our phones and our tablets, and then we're going to lick it off together. You guys ready to do that? Yeah. If you didn't get that joke, that was from Pastor Brad last week. Uh, uh, and I just want to encourage you, check out gatewaylife.com. Not only Brad's uh, sermon from last week, but Pastor Preston, the two weeks to set up this series. It's just been such a gift to be able to dig into the word together, thinking about who Jesus is a little bit more. All right, now this time I am serious. Look at the book or the device in your hand. Do you really love this book? I know that we're supposed to love it. And for some of us, I think we really do. But others of us, if we set aside the religious expectations of other people and we're honest, we struggle to love it. Is that you? You know, that's me sometimes. And I just want to say there's no shame. There's no condemnation in that. It's just sometimes it's a challenge to let ourselves get into this book. You know, if we realize that some of the stories in here are like seriously R-rated movie themes, we might get a little more interested I'm pretty sure that if some of the things in here were committed to film, my mom definitely wouldn't have let me watch it in the 80s. (laughs) Now, what if I say, how about the Old Testament? Like, does that make that anxiety about reading the Bible grow even higher? I mean, I think about how many people wait in line all overnight for the old iPhone. (laughs) Not many people do. You know what I'm saying? It's like a marketing language And I wonder, are you willing to be honest with me that the Old Testament's hard sometimes? You don't have to be embarrassed just because I'm a rabbi. Uh, But my question for you is, though we all struggle, do we want to struggle? Like, I don't think any of us sit around and go, oh, yeah, I like struggling with reading the Bible. But even though it's true for us sometimes, I don't think that the Lord wants it to be. Like, this is who he is. And it speaks to us. And if we can push through, I think we can overcome that struggle. You know, uh, maybe you're, you're here or you're joining us online because your spouse or your parent or your colleague convinced you to do so. Uh, You're not sure what you think about Jesus or Bible or anything at all. Maybe you just Googled randomly and all of a sudden you're joining us online. 
I just want to say, if you're not sure about that, that's okay with me. But as we spend some time together the next few minutes, I'm hoping that if you're hearing this story for the first time, or maybe you're hearing it for uh, a second time, but you're doing it through new ears, our hope for you is that you'll walk away thinking about something a little different than you did when we began today. That's our prayer for you, and that's our hope for you. Now, no matter where you are in your journey or how you landed to be here with us today, I want to talk to you about something that I hope will create a deeper appreciation for the entirety of this book. It's a simple statement. Jesus is the central figure of the story of the whole Bible from cover to cover. My title this morning for this talk is, in fact, From Cover to Cover. The real Jesus is from cover to cover. Now, I don't know how many of you are nerds in here. I got two hands up. I just want you to know I'm double nerd. So there's some theology that will be underlying what I'm going to talk about today. I'm not going to point it out explicitly, except in a couple places. But those theological terms, there's three, I'll give them to you. The Christophany, the Incarnation, and just to spice it up a little bit, I'm going to talk about eschatology. Now, I know some of you just went, oh, he's going to talk about the end times. No, no, no. It'll be real soft, I promise. But please, as we go through, I want to ask you to let this speak to your heart and not just your brain. Pastor Preston started out this series by saying, hey, we're digging into this not to build up our intellect, but to build up our intimacy. Pastor Brad last week said, hey, this isn't about scholarship. It's about stewardship. And so I ask you again, would you let this speak to your heart and not just your brain? Can we pray together before we begin? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Open our minds and stir our hearts as we press into just who Jesus is. Show us all truth. Yeshua, Jesus, we ask that you would open our eyes to this book and to develop in us an insatiable appetite for all the good and truth and life that it proclaims. Our Father in heaven, show us the glory of your Son. We love him and we want to know him more. B'Shem Yeshua, in Jesus' name, can you say it together with me? Amen. Well, I want to ask you to turn to two places in your Bible. Genesis 18 and Revelation 1. Genesis 18, Revelation 1. If you don't have a Bible or you're just following along, I think everything will be on the screen. But that's where I want to begin the story of our time together today. You know, the story of the Bible is the story of the God of Israel. And that's where the story begins. Of course, the, the, the biblical account begins with creation and Noah, but very quickly we get into the story of, of Abraham and how, how God said that Abraham, believing in him, was credited with righteousness so that it would impact all the families of the earth. I think we've gotten that set up for us pretty well in this series. But if we look at Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2, I just want you to, to see something here about Abraham's life story. It says in verse 1 of Genesis 18, Then the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. 
Verse two, so he, Abraham, lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he, Abraham, saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the ground. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this story, but the story continues that Abraham hosts a meal at which the Lord appeared as one of three men. And if any of you are familiar with with rabbinics at all, I just want to point out that Abraham served the God of Israel in the form of a man, milk, and meat together. (laughs) Who appeared? If you look at the text, who is it that appeared? It just says the Lord. yud heh vav appears to Abraham. What form did he take? He was one of three men. Let me just repeat those two things. We answered two questions. Who appeared the Lord? In what form? As a man. What was Abraham's response? What did Abraham do? It says in Hebrew, vaishtaku, he bowed down in worship. It wasn't like a, a polite bow, like to honor someone. He got down on the ground and worshiped the God of Israel in the form of a man. Now I ask you this, how does Abraham know who he is? Like, he hasn't even spoken yet. How does Abraham know who he is? I think it's because Abraham recognized him. It's the same one that spoke to him in Genesis 12 and told him to leave his dad's house, leave his, his family, and go out and start a new family. It's the same guy that appeared to him in Genesis 15 in a flame of fire in a smoking pot. That's what a lot of translations say. It's the same guy that appears to him there, and it's the same guy that appears to him in Genesis 17, just the chapter before. You know what happens in Genesis 17? God asks Abraham to take all of the males of his household and take upon themselves the sign of the covenant with the people of Israel. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. But I do think about, you know, the sign of the covenant for the Jewish people it's a little different than the sign of the covenant for the nations through Noah. You know, the nations get the rainbow and the Jewish people get circumcision. So if you're comparing the two things and you're a Gentile, like you should celebrate the rainbow. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Oh boy. Well, there's a lot of stories like that. That's just one that's really clear with Abraham. And he's the father of our faith. Jews and Gentiles together, Abraham's the father of our faith. I want to point out just a couple of other ones because I think they're fun. I'm going to tell them to you, though, instead of read them to you. If you're interested in the details, the YouVersion uh, notes are available through the YouVersion Bible app. But in Exodus 3, Moses has an encounter with someone that's described in the text as Malak Adonai, or the messenger, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears next to a bush in a flame of fire. Look at this text later. It's extraordinary what happens. And I want to point out from the beginning, it's not the bush that's on fire. It's the angel of the Lord. The messenger of the Lord appears in the midst of a fire. So you got to change all the coloring sheets for Sunday school. You can't color the bush anymore. you got to color the angel, the messenger of the Lord. Three people laughed. I'm grateful for those. Um, What does Moses do? Well, Moses interacts with him, and he says, 
hey, the place where I'm standing is holy. You need to take off your shoes and worship me. Now, you know, if this was just a regular angel, we know from John's experience in the book of Revelation that we're not allowed to worship regular angels. You remember that in John's experience? He says, hey, 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 the angel says to John, don't worship me. I'm just a servant like you. But this one demands worship. It's a different experience altogether. What about Joshua 5? Joshua is one of my favorite heroes in the Bible. I'm going to take a drink here. Not just because he's a war leader, but his war leader, his, his place as a warrior was birthed out of intimacy in the tabernacle. Oh, man, that's a lot. Of, that's something good for some men in here. And this figure appears to Joshua. It says in the text, a man appeared. Adam, same as the name of Adam. A man appeared to Joshua. And Joshua, being a good warrior, goes, hey, are you for us or are you for our enemies? I love the messenger of the Lord's response. He says, no. I wonder sometimes about us. Do we go to the Lord and say, hey, are you for us or are you for the other guys? Are you for the red team or are you for the blue team? Who are you for? And God's answer is no. The question is, Whose side are you on? The question is, are you with me or are you against me? I'm going to take with him. I don't know about y'all, but that's what I'm going to take. And this figure says, I didn't come to figure out if I was on your side or not, Joshua. I came as the prince of the Lord's armies. And what does he say to him? My presence here makes this place holy. You better take off your shoes, bow down, and worship me. It's incredible this figure shows up everywhere. I'm going to just talk about one more place, Ezekiel 1. Anybody ever read Ezekiel 1? Uh, like, I would love if all the people that work for DreamWorks would come to, to a knowledge of who Yeshua is as the Messiah so that they could put this sequence in, like, vivid technicolor. It would be incredible. But, but Ezekiel sees into the heavenly throne room he sees all these creatures, one has a man's face, an eagle's face, and a lion's face. Like, it's crazy what he sees. Right into the glorious throne room of heaven, and what is at the top of that glorious visitation? Adam, a man sitting in a chair. And Ezekiel freaks out and falls down like he's dead. You know what the rabbis say about Ezekiel 1? The rabbis say you can't read Ezekiel 1 without the guidance of a rabbi, or, only, or one of two things will happen. You'll either go crazy, or you'll become apostate, which means you'll become a believer in Jesus. Because the picture is so vivid. Now, I want to read just one more passage uh, uh, from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Old Testament. This is from Daniel 10. Now, let me just say who Daniel is. Daniel's a prophet among the people of Israel that God, set, God assigned him to serve as a counselor to three pagan kingdoms. You want to be a prophet? Great. You get to serve three pagan kingdoms. I'm not sure that sounds like something that any of us really want to sign up for. But Daniel in chapter 10 says this. He says, I lifted my eyes and look and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with the gold of Ephos. 
His body like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Skip down to verse nine. Yet I, I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Daniel sees this, this certain man, says Ish-Echad in the text, this unique man, this specific man. Daniel sees him and describes him and falls down as dead. Here's my summary thought. The God of Israel appears in the form of a man throughout the Hebrew scriptures and is worshipped by the forefathers, heroes, and prophets of Israel. Sometimes this figure is described as a messenger or an angel. Sometimes he's described as the word. Sometimes he's glorious in appearance like Ezekiel. Sometimes he just appears like a man with Abraham. 56 references from Genesis to Malachi have, an, have a, a description of this figure in the text of the Hebrew scriptures. The God of Israel is personal and intimate with the people of Israel throughout the record of Scripture, and they worship him when they see him. One more scripture before we move to point number two. This is from Revelation 1. John has the experience of the book of Revelation, and this is how it starts out. I want you to catch the description of what John says. He says in verse 10, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. That voice was saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. Let me pause. Anybody use red letter edition? Do you use a red letter edition of the text at home? I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. Jesus is saying those words. And when John turned to look and see Jesus, this is what he saw. 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And when I, John, saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Do you catch the, the imagery here? It's exactly the same as Daniel. The only difference is, it's Jesus. And John is his best friend. And John's response to his best friend in a glorious appearance is to fall down at his feet as if dead, just like Daniel. Just like Abraham at the covenant of the parts in Genesis 15. You know, but that's not the, the end of the story. Of course you all know that. The story continues. The God of Israel got born. Like, do, do we, do you, have we dealt with that in our minds? The God of Israel got born. He became a man. And, and I think about John's experience, you know. He's Jesus' best friend. Like, he laid on Jesus' chest at the Passover meal. Jesus calls him, or John calls himself, the one whom Jesus loved. <laughs> That guy's got so much confidence. John's also the only man at the cross. He's the only man from the disciples of, of Yeshua, of Jesus at the cross. 
I want to point out that there are lots of women there because ladies are always first. Go, ladies. John took care of Jesus' mom after he died. Like, John's super tight with Jesus. Now, I'm of the opinion that John wrote his gospel after he had his revelation experience. That's why his gospel is so different than the synoptics. And John, I'm imagining as a writer, is going, you know, I lived with this guy. I lived with him for three and a half years. We walked around together, and I saw him in his glorious appearance, but I didn't get that when I was walking around with him on the shores of Galilee and ministering in Jerusalem. Like, I, 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 how do I explain this to my readers? I think this is how he explains it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. John is overwhelmed by his experience and he's not sure how to explain it to us. And this is his attempt. And he uses the in the beginning language. Just like the Bible begins in Genesis 1. What's the point? The agent of creation was born. I don't know if you're like, Troy, we know that. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just overwhelmed by the science of it all. Can I do some science with you for a minute? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But half of who Jesus is was way down deep inside of Mary. And the angel Gabriel invites her to something and she says, so let it be done unto me. And the other 23, I think it's 23 chromosomes, are added to the human zygote inside of her by the Holy Spirit. Like, that just blows my mind. I mean, it's no wonder Joseph was like, whatever, Mary. <laughs> you understand? I mean, we know about the birds and the bees, but if my wife came home and said, I'm pregnant, but not by a man, I'd be like, hey, we're going to have to have a conversation. John also points out an implication of his encounter with Jesus in the book of Revelation a few verses later in verse 18 of John 1. He says this, no one has seen God at any time. Let me just pause. No one, it's not gender, it's not male or female. No one has seen God, meaning God the Father, 95% of the time in the New Testament text, God means God God means God the Father, just by the way. So let me continue. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has made him known. Now John says this here, and across his writings, he says something similar to this, that no man has seen God the Father at any time. He says that four additional times in his writings. But it's not just John that says it. Let a thing be established in the mouth of two witnesses or more. Paul also says it three times. That no one has seen God at any time. Or that God himself is, is, is invisible. The Father, but the Son has declared him, has made him known. What's the implication of that? An appearance of God across the sweep of Scripture is the Son declaring the Father. Everywhere in this book. 
when there's an appearance of yud Hey vav Hey, when there's an appearance sometimes of Elohim, when that happens, it's the son declaring the father. I didn't say it, John said it five times and Paul said it three times. Have you ever thought about that? Who is Adam walking in the cool of the day with? Who does Hagar see and says, oh, the one I see sees me. What about Jacob? Who does Jacob wrestle with? Who does Jacob see at the top of a ladder? What about the, the, the elders of Israel? They're on Mount Sinai. They, can, they sit with God and they have a fellowship meal with him. What? Samson's parents. Oh, if you want to read a great story, Judges 13. It's a crazy good story. You should totally read it. I don't have time. Isaiah, Zechariah. They all saw some form of the God of Israel and John and Paul tell us that it's the son declaring the father. Like this, this blows my mind every time I think about it. But maybe it's just because I'm a nerd. So here's the, here's the crazy thing. We covered the incarnation. It's not just that he was born. He submitted himself to the authority of broken humanity. The agent of creation became one of us and then submitted himself to our authority structures which are covered in the effects of sin. It's mind-numbing. And it starts with his family. Luke 2, Jesus' bar mitzvah, is the way some people refer to it. Jesus is coming of age. His parents take him to Jerusalem for, for Passover for the very first time. And, and he stays behind. They leave for like two days. They're traveling back from the city and, and they didn't notice that he was missing. There's a parental lesson for Mary and Joseph in there somewhere. But it, then they realize it and they run back to the city. I just like to imagine this for a minute. Like this is Mary as a mom. She's like, oh, the rebellion has started. I knew he wasn't the son of God. And Joseph turns to her and goes, you know, stepsons. <laughs> Jesus had a stepdad. Like, there might be some of you that are dealing with the effects of stepfamilies. Jesus had half-brothers, and they made fun of him. And it's in the text. I just wonder if maybe the Lord wants to do some ministry to some hearts and minds. Jesus will touch you because he experienced things like mixed blended families, if you will. He knows what that feels like personally. What's his response to Joseph, by the way, and Mary? <laughs> Didn't you know I'd have to be about my father's business? Like, if that was my stepson, there'd be no screen time for two weeks at least. <laughs> what about Matthew 26? An armed multitude comes to arrest Jesus as a common criminal. Peter pulls out his sword to try to fight and Jesus says, hey, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could call down 12 legions of angels to free me from this experience, but I have to drink the cup that my father set before me? Like Jesus just submits himself to the authority of an armed multitude. And he didn't do anything wrong. What about John 19? I love the dialogue between Pilate and Jesus in, in John 18 and 19. Talking about truth and authority and rulership. Pilate is an idol-worshiping representative of a pagan government. How many of y'all are feeling some politics in your heart stir up right now? Jesus says to Pilate, 
You only have authority over me because it has been given to you from above. How's that for speaking truth to power? It's a whole different form. This is who Jesus is. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says this about Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Equality with God, a shared divinity with the Father that Jesus didn't use to his own advantage. I mean, we're having a lot of conversations these days about what we do with our privilege. I love to look what Jesus did with his privilege. He laid that all down to become a servant to all, even willing to die for it. But you know what? The story doesn't end there. He didn't stay dead. I was expecting a little bit of a, woo, come on now. He didn't stay dead. He came up out of the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives to make intercession for us. That's good news today. You know, there's one more thing that I want to talk about. The story doesn't end only with him being resurrected and then ascending to heaven. There's more to the story. It's not over yet. Jesus will fulfill his destiny. He, the God of Israel, born in the form of a man, will fulfill his destiny. Troy, what? Wait a second. Jesus has a destiny? I thought he just helped me fulfill my destiny. No, no, he does help you fulfill his destiny, but he has one himself. What is Jesus's destiny? Well, I'm so glad that you asked in that funny voice. John 18, verse 37, this is part of the dialogue with Pilate. Pilate's talking to him about the accusation that he's coming against Rome, which is the accusation that the high priest put against Jesus, against Yeshua. And, and Pilate therefore said to him, Jesus, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Let's look at this text together for a minute. Why was he born? To be a king. Where? In this world. I just want to point that out. We already saw from Ezekiel and Isaiah. Jesus... The God of Israel in the form of a man already had a heavenly kingdom. But he's not coming for a heavenly kingdom. He's coming for an earthly kingdom. That's what he was born to do, was to bear the weight of heaven's glory on an earth that's been redeemed from sin. Contrary to what we might sing from time to time, he wasn't born to die. He was willing to die, and him and the Father had a conference before the creation of the world where he said, Daddy, I'll give up my life for them. And he said, great, then you can create it. And then they created it, and right away we fall. But I just want you to know, the cross was not plan B. They decided that from before in the beginning. Ooh. That's why his genealogy matters so much. 
Jesus' genealogy matters so much because he's a, a double inheritor of the promises to David. A kingdom in Israel on the throne of David is Jesus' birthright. That's what he was born for. Can I introduce you to a Hebrew phrase, a Hebrew idiom? It'll be on the screen. Malchut Hashemayim. Can you say it with me? Malchut Hashemayim. One more time. Malchut Hashemayim. The kingdom of heaven. Jesus walks all around in the gospels, all four of them, talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's near. It's at hand. It's available to you. The declaration of the kingdom of heaven is not only spiritual. It is spiritual in part. But the Hebrew idiom of the kingdom of heaven is that the kingdom of heaven is the culmination of the vision of all the prophets of Israel. I don't know if you've caught what the prophets say. One day, there's going to be social, ethnic, economic, governmental, and ecological justice on the face of the earth. Literal, on the earth, there will be world peace under the direction of the morals of the God of Israel. How many of y'all get excited about that? Is it just me? I just want to say, it's not an executive order or a political party that brings that kingdom to the earth. It's ruled over by the son of David, and it's brought about by the people of the God of Israel. The people of the God of Israel includes those from Israel and those from the nations who have attached their heart to the son of David that gave up his life, took it up again, and will come back one day to make sure that this earth is prepared for the Father's presence. Now let's think about Malchut HaShemayim for a minute. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus experience, I love the humor in that, by the way. Jesus is walking along the road with them for three hours. You know, hey, what's going on, guys? How you doing? Oh, what's going on? You look kind of depressed. Their answer isn't about the fact that he died only. Their answer is, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. They weren't saying something only spiritual in that. They were expecting him to bring Malchut HaShemayim to bear as the son of David on the earth. Throw off the pagan governmental system that was ruling over their land that was promised through the covenants of Israel. What about Acts 1? Acts 1 is a great one to go and read. 40-day seminar with the resurrected Jesus. How many of y'all would like to be a part of that seminar? 40-day seminar where he's teaching them concerning himself and the kingdom of God from Moses and the scriptures, it says. At the end of the 40-day seminar, the disciples say, so will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I know sometimes we read that and like, oh, those guys, they sure did miss it. No, they didn't. They were asking for the natural consequence of if he was in fact the son of David, he would be bringing justice to the earth. His answer to them was, hey, you don't need to worry about the time. When my, father's got, my father's got the timing. You guys, just go be my witnesses. Go tell the world about my love. Go tell the world who doesn't know our God and our people's story. Go tell them about our God and invite them in so that when Malchut HaShemayim comes, it won't be Jews only, it'll be every tribe and tongue. Isaiah 9 Verse 6, the first two verses everybody knows because it's from Christmas time. 
For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. I just want to say, a child has been born. It's good news. A son has been given to us. Hallelujah and amen. But you know, it continues, this promise. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it in establishment with, justice, with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. A, son's been, a child's been born, a son's been given, but I ask you a question. Has his government increased across the face of the earth from the throne of David yet? Is there permanent justice here? No. Amen. There is not. But there will be one day. It's not just a promise for us in the sweet by and by of a heavenly experience in another realm. That heavenly experience will descend from heaven and will reclaim the earth and kick the enemy off of it. <laughs> That's good for all of creation. So if we don't start yelling about it, the creation will start groaning. Philippians 2 continues that because Jesus was willing to lay down his life, the Father took him and put him at the highest place in heaven. Where every knee, this is what the text says, every knee in heaven, every knee on the earth, and every knee under the earth will bow down to Jesus and declare that he is Lord. I just want to ask you a question. Has that happened yet? I mean, we know that the answer is no because some of our family members don't know him yet. Ooh. Israel doesn't know who he is yet. But they will one day. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus' destiny is to spend a thousand years on the earth putting all things under his feet. All power, all dominion, all authority will be under Jesus' feet. I just want to point out, it takes him a thousand years to do that. He's the son of God. Why do we think that four years anybody's going to do anything? The last enemy that he defeats is death. Death will be gone permanently from the earth. Then it says this, the father will be all and in all. Jesus' destiny is to prepare a broken world for the coming of the Father himself. You know, when that happens, it's going to be like the earth is created new. The heavens are going to be new. The city is going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. This is the reason he was born and has come into the world as a man. So Malchut Hashemayim, related to Jesus, Jesus was born to be king of the Jews and sit on the throne of his father David on the earth. You know, people don't know this, but this is the cry of their own hearts. They just don't know that this is the goal of the whole biblical record, that we would see righteousness and justice flow like a river. Martin Luther King had this dream. In fact, the text in Haggai 2 tells us that this is the desire of all nations. The nations just didn't know it. I just want to ask you, can we give ourselves to this dream? Peter says that we can hasten it. 
We can, we, can, we can prayerfully contribute to the quickening of it happening on the earth. It's the pursuit of everything in our hopes and dreams. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that this is what all the forefathers and heroes of the faith were going, were pressing in for, were crying out for. And you know what it says there? It says that they, they died not receiving the promise the end of the chapter says, because they're not going to come into their fullness without us. Oh my gosh. We get to get all of Abraham's rewards with him at the same time. That's going to be such a glorious day. Last summary statement. The story of Jesus is from cover to cover and is still being written through our lives. Paul says to the Corinthians, you are an epistle. You are a letter of the Messiah written by the Spirit. Jesus said to the disciples, go and be my witnesses. Go tell everybody the good news. Start in Jerusalem, then move to Judea and Samaria. But eventually, guys, you got to get this to the end of the earth. Everybody needs to know. Many of us have already said yes to this. But maybe there's a few of you that haven't. I just want to. I want to plead with you. Will you consider joining with Jesus in the pursuit of peace and justice on the earth in the coming of his kingdom? It is for our salvation. It is for forgiveness of sin. It's for our own emotional and psychological wholeness. But there's something else behind the scenes. Jesus wants to come and fulfill the dream of the prophets. We should give our energy and our passion and our activism to that government to that truth, to that concept of justice. Not just as individuals, but also as families. You know, a family that's given to the kingdom of heaven can change a neighborhood. What about a community? A community of faith given to a city can change the city. That's us. Now, I know I've said a lot of things that might be new to a few of you today. I just want to encourage you, don't take my word for it. Read this thing. It's got really good stuff to say. And it might be a little different than the way we've thought about it in the past. Ask Jesus. He loves to talk about these things. Get into the book. It has so many wonderful things to show you. Are you willing to join me in a short prayer? Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your willingness to become one of us and to lay down your life. Father, thank you for working together with your son to design a plan for how to redeem creation before we even needed a redeemer. Father, thank you for raising your son up again that we might be able to enter into eternal life. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see you in a deeper and more complete way. Jesus, help some to see you for the first time. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would draw us close to this book, that we would hunger and thirst for it, and that our hunger and thirst would be insatiable. There's a dream in your heart, Lord, that's recorded from Genesis to Revelation, that you've invited us to be a part of it. Lord, would you help that dream come alive in a different way? this day, this week, this hour, this moment. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.
and amen. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.